Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Adrian. And I'm Max. Welcome, Max. Each month on Spectology, we pick a speculative fiction book, read it, and talk about it over two episodes. This is our pre-read episode where we'll discuss the book without spoilers. It'll be a bit of context for the book before you read it. And later in the month, we'll release our post-read episode where we'll discuss the book all in depth. Check out our Twitter, which is at SpectologyPod, for an up-to-date schedule. We keep that posted there. Today, we have a very special guest, as you may be able to hear, Max Gladstone, critically acclaimed author of the craft sequence and many other things, including book burners, uh, the new season of which is currently out. Well, actually, why don't you say a few words uh, to tell the folks a little bit about yourself, Max, if you'd like. Sure. Well, um, so... I write the craft sequence of legal fantasy novels, uh, fantasy novels about wizards in pinstripe suits and dead gods with shareholders committees. Uh, and the most recent book of that is Ruin of Angels, which was out last year, which is a book about a number of uh, reality archaeologists who are attempting to save their world from um, an evil startup, kind of. And uh, most recent release is Book Burners, the fourth season of which is now running. And Book Burners is a fiction serial that's co-written by Myself, Mer Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, Brian Francis Slattery, and Margaret Dunlap. Um, it's a long-running episodic story about some supernatural investigators who are employed by the Vatican to run around finding magical things and sticking them in a box and never opening the box, which turns out about as well as you can expect for all parties. And it started as a sort of monster of the week supernatural procedural and over four seasons, it's grown into an extended sort of climate change and global development metaphor. And it's so much fun. Uh, and that's available through Serial Box Publishing, who does a lot of the this um, audio and um, print serial uh, electronic book stuff. They're a really great space to look at. It's a really cool project. I mean, you've written uh, uh, sort of uh, traditional novels uh, and uh, a number of other things, but this particular project, Book Burners, is very cool because it's almost like a new, it's very, um, it's like cutting edge new format for uh, science fiction literature type stuff. So you've got this app that you can download and the app will uh, uh, show you the latest episodes as they come out and allow you to listen to audio of them and read them sort of side by side if you like, or either either or. Um, it's very, very cool, cool stuff. Um, and so you're you're like a perfect person to talk to about the book that we're talking about this month, which is Noman by Nick Harkaway. Um, Noman is a uh, a book that plays with the nature of books, plays with various types of formats and uh, narratives in the nature of those. Um, we're going to get into talking a little bit more about it, but this is our pre-read episode, so we're not going to talk about it in great detail. We're just going to kind of give you the context and lay out the 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 land around the book so that um, anyone that wants to read the book will be able to do so without too many spoilers. Um, Max is the perfect person, like I was alluding to, to talk about this book because he's somebody who thinks really deeply about the nature of books and formats and the capabilities of science fiction as a genre and the capabilities of narrative, um, which are so central to this book. And you're also somebody, I think, who really likes this book. So you'll be hopefully uh, interested in sharing your views on it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love this one, honestly. Um, it was... I read it on a friend's recommendation after a couple of months of reading a lot of books that were fine to really fun, but this one just kind of 
opened up the back of my skull. It was an experience that I hadn't had in years of just being so enthralled with what a book was trying to do, the scope of its imagination, the directions that it was taking, and and just the sheer depth and intricacy of the kind of games it was playing. I don't know if it's for everyone, but it was absolutely for me. And it's one of the few books that I've put down feeling um, almost ennobled in my sense of what it was possible to do as a writer and what it was possible to do in science fiction and in the kind of broader genres that connect onto it, including literary fiction for that matter. I mean, this was a very interstitial book in that way. I think it's published by Knopf and it's, it's sort of distributed very much as a standard literary book, but this is as science fictional as you get really. Sweet. So before we get into talking about maybe the context of the book a little bit more and uh, laying out some of the interesting themes and some of our thoughts on the the terrain around it, um, let's let's lay out a few more of the basic facts here. Um, Adrian, you have, I think, uh, in front of you some of these basic facts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, nothing that hasn't already been said, honestly. Um, you know, the book is Nomon by Nick Harkaway. It was published in late 2017 in the UK, at least. I, I think it was published around the same time here in the US as well. Um, Nick's a, a British author. And I think, um, you know, kind of interestingly is the son of John Le Carré, um, who is... Wait, really? Know, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah. This is... Yep. <laughs> yeah. I didn't discover it until about like halfway... Um, I don't even know what it would be halfway to. There was a few weeks after I read the book and after I'd been talking about it and shoving it on everyone that I came across this particular fact. Man, I should listen to this podcast before I read books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so should all of you out there in TV land. <laughs> but uh, he, um, TV land. <laughs> um, he is, uh, right, he's the son of uh, John LeCure and his... Um, wife who is an editor and who who I forgot to write down her name and I feel kind of dumb about that. Um so he comes from like a literary background although he used to work in film first before he began writing. That also makes so much sense. Yeah. His first book was Gone Away World which I read a while ago like years ago and really really enjoyed it. Um I have you guys read any of his other books? Nope. No, this is the first one for me. Oh, okay. I, Max, based on like your books that I've read, I think you'd really enjoy The Gone Away World as well. Excellent. Yeah, The Gone Away World is like very much about capitalism and like business, like specifically. Like obviously that's an element of this (laughs) book too, but that book is like really explicitly about that. And it's also like weird and gonzo and really fun and and kind of um, experimental in a different way, but plays around with some of the same experimental stuff. Um, as far as Nomon itself goes, I mean, it was published really recently. I don't think it's actually been like it's up for like the current batch of awards. I don't know if it's won any awards per se yet. I couldn't find anything about that. Um, it is a standalone novel, as probably just become obvious from our conversation so far um and doesn't rely on any of his other fiction i mean i think it's a pretty it's it's also it's large (laughs) like max was showing me his like physical copy and i was like oh shit i didn't realize that's how much book i have yet to go (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. Adrian and I have the uh, have the electronic versions. So uh, yeah, you just I've, have percentage points. Right. right. I'm like five percent of the way through the Kindle version. I'm like, oh, this is this is taking a little while. And then I saw the hardcover. Like, oh, no wonder it's taking a little while. <laughs> well, the, the, I find those percentage points so dreadfully misleading. You know, I'm reading oh, yeah. the Power Broker right now, which is uh, Robert uh, Caro's book about Robert Moses, which is about the size of a phone book and printed about with a kind of depth of print or density of print that you'd usually associate with cheap editions of the Bible. And just trying to imagine that book in electronic format, the just sheer futility of each page (laughs) turn. No, you're still at the same location, still at the same percentage point. It's still going to be 97 hours before you're finished with this book. (laughs) At least with at least with the physical edition, I can flip a page and know that the page has been flipped. So right. Roman isn't that bad, but it's it's definitely <laughs> a it's definitely on the Neil Stevenson scale of unnecessarily bulky science fiction. Yeah, and it's definitely I don't know I I don't get the Maybe sense that it's unnecessarily in the same way right. that some of Neil Stevenson's work is. <laughs> I didn't say that. No, it's actually that's like three other podcasts, right? Everything you just said, but. <laughs> <laughs> I am in fact supporting this microphone right now, uh, viewers at home, on at two volumes of Neil Stevenson, which means that it's about six feet off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so Max's two volumes of Neil Stevenson to support his microphone is uh, equaled by three volumes of contract law that I'm using. So <laughs> that's the ratio we're working with here. That's what we got here in this household. But no, I mean, to the unnecessarily point, um, my experience of reading Noman was of being totally sort of torn away as I was paging through it. It was a book that superseded basic biological functions for me for a solid week. Um, it was one where, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff going on on the page. There are a lot of ideas. It's not a, it's not a book that, um, what do I mean to say here exactly? The prose is present. Like he's mm-hmm. thought about the way he wants his sentences to be put together. He's thought about where they need to go on the page. There's this common discussion especially in science fiction writing circles of like the invisible prose and I use that with very loose quotation marks and I think it kind of covers up a a much deeper conversation about what prose can be and what prose does Um, the prose here is is like it has it has a texture it's but the texture is smooth it's it feels like a like a bullet almost. It's it's just driving you forward. So for me, even though this is a very long book and there's a lot of different stuff going on, it was an enormously propulsive and compulsive read. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's I mean that's making me want to go read it more right now. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get too deep into talking about the book, we usually try to give a little bit of a content warning up front, both for stuff we might talk about in the episode, but also in the pre-read, just sort of like, you know, stuff you might want to know about the book. Um, since we haven't read the book, Max, I was wondering if there's anything about it that that sticks out to you there that people might want to know about it before they get into it. Well, in the sort of content warning universe, um, there's unless I'm grievously misremembering something, there's no sexual violence. There's a 
decent amount of sex, mm-hmm. you know, sort of consensual people are excited about it. Sex. <laughs> um, we like there, that. Good. <laughs> there is, there is violence. There is a, um, depicted but not gratuitously so sequence of uh, political incarceration and torture mm-hmm. Good there is a um there are complicated neurosurgery is a major sub theme of the book mm. it, it's not that grossly depicted, but the implications of it are pretty chilling. And choice theft in general is one of the kind of major themes. Um, And Mm -hmm. that sort of loss of autonomy can be a huge issue for some people, even Mm -hmm. if there's not any specifically sexual violence in the course of the Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. Also, if you have a shark phobia, this is perhaps (laughs) not the book for you. Yeah, that's actually, I'm only like 5% of the way in, and that is definitely true. (laughs) Shark, 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 shark. I mean, to be fair, I am going to hold up a copy of the book for our non-existent camera lens. The fin, well, the front of the American edition is... it says Noman on the top and it's black and it has a giant shark fin right. and then a bunch of numbers for inside the shark fin. So you probably know what you're getting. Right. The the, the cover <laughs> is a little bit of a content warning for you right there. Exactly. It's maybe worth because um, we've been talking about book facts here, talking about the title a little bit and what what a Noman is. It was not a word I knew before looking up the book facts. <laughs> um, it is and, a word and reading the book is it's explained pretty yeah. quickly in the quickly, book itself quickly in the book so even if you're um sort of far out like me about spoilers it is explained very early on right well i mean i think uh <laughs> it is also a word that exists so i don't know how right. much that exactly exactly a spoiler that um, is literally how I, we've we have a whole episode about yeah. what how i think about spoilers and how adrian thinks about <laughs> right anyway. matt literally doesn't want to know words <laughs> he doesn't want to know any words the, the well, english language must bend to what he's read that's right well, one thing that's really fascinating about this book is the choice of nomen as the title and Harkaway knows, of course, that this is a word that most of the reading mm-hmm. public is not going to be terribly familiar with, even like a really educated reading public, mm-hmm, even the right. kind of people who are buying first run hardcovers at $27 <laughs> off of the literary shelf. Um, and he does a really cool job of slowly presenting meanings or layers of meaning for the word and adding mm-hmm. more layers of meaning. So this question of like, what is Nomen? Why is this book called Nomen? Um, becomes one of the core threads through. So this is one of those cases where Matt may actually be right, not want to want to go <laughs> looking it up. I believe one of the... Hmm? Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say one of... <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the first <laughs> meanings that's introduced for it, unless I'm misremembering, is that yeah. a gnomon is the part of a sundial that sticks up. Right. So the part that is casting the shadow that you use to mm-hmm. tell time. Well, I think mm-hmm. I think the way the book, because this is the only part of the book I've read that mentions it. It's in the very first chapter. It says that it was originally a carpenter's square. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where the sundial usage comes from. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Um, which I thought was interesting because I had looked it up beforehand being curious um, and and not, you know, not one to police my own curiosity due to some <laughs> foreign idea of spoilers. <laughs> oh, man. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, but like Wikipedia and all the dictionaries mentioned the um, the sundial piece first. So it was interesting to learn this kind of historically. That's not the initial you know thing that it actually means from the book yeah another uh interesting meaning that comes up um at some point relatively early in the book is uh mathematical um in ancient greece because of the pre-existing carpenter meaning uh, euclid borrowed the word um to describe um a, p- a, a shape or a part of another shape that protrudes um and so that's a useful word in, in topology. And it also, you know, there's, it's another important resonance, uh, on various points. I can't really speak to all the resonances that Max alluded to because I haven't finished the book, but that is definitely one that the cover of the book will also call out with, with what with the, the fours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a great package. Um, it's a great, mm-hmm. the, the American edition is a beautifully designed piece of work and one thing that I find really funny about it is um, the text is presented. Um, so some of there are several nested stories in the book um, that are all tied together into a large narrative. I don't think this is spoiling anything too much. Don't police yourself. You should say whatever you like. All right. Yeah. Um, it's easier to remove than to add something. Fair enough. And they're presented in different typefaces. So you've got this hardcover with deckled edges. That's the kind of ragged edges that sometimes make it hard to figure out what's the next page that you want to flip <laughs> because it's they're not all in line. But they look very beautiful because they're supposed to evoke the feeling of a freshly cut book mm-hmm. um you know that in ye oldie publishing ye days um there you would buy books where the um the pages were all still f- sort of folded together and you'd actually cut them off and you'd get this kind of deckling these this v pattern along the edge of the book um and people would do that when they were trying to read it so in great gatsby there's a lot of to do made of the fact that Gatsby has this huge library that's full of books, but none of their edges have been cut, which means literally it was impossible for him to have read any of them. <laughs> so, so anyway, so you've got this deckled edge copy, this very heavy, high quality paper stock, and a decent chunk of the book is set in Helvetica. It's set in this sort of sans serif, very screen font, like the thing that looks like every dialogue box that popped up on your Macintosh in 1997. It's, it, I don't know, the, the, the ways that the physical object has been designed are really cool for me. That's actually really interesting because, you know, I have the Kindle edition. I think Matt also uses the Kindle. Yeah. And um, there... A lot of it is set in the screen font, but the parts that I assume the parts that are set in like more of a bookish font in the book, which would seem correct in a book, are also set in a very kind of like flowery serifed book font on the oh, Kindle, excellent. which is, you know, very incongruous. Like it's not usually the type of font that you see on a Kindle. That's right. I, as far oh, as I know, cool. the, yeah, as far as I know, the typesetting is the same. 
to the extent possible by technology. In other words, they've picked the same fonts from different sections. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm so glad because that's something that um, often gets overlooked, like the sort of book design of the ebook is often an afterthought. And that's so cool that they did it for this one. Right. Well, it seems like a necessary component. Um, You know, it's it's. (laughs) <laughs> you talking so much about the hardcover really makes me want to pick up the hardcover, which I don't actually that frequently do, but like support your local fun. bookseller. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Luckily, oh. New York city has a lot of those, but <laughs> um, that's, that's cool. I'm, I too am glad that they, they did that. And one of the, you know, at the risk of, of edging on spoilers, the, the, the reason that these different typesets are there is really cool. And they, I, I find that whenever the type changes, it like pulls me into the book a little bit more, kind of like you were mm-hmm. talking about. The yeah. book is very mm-hmm. like grippy, like a shark's mouth. <laughs> it grabs <laughs> oh, you and kind of pulls you under. <laughs> It, it it really is sort of fractally shark this book like <laughs> even even uh, you know shark skin of course mm-hmm. has these little teeth the dendrites that are sort of pointing backward which is one of the reasons that sam- it gets used for samurai armor it's mm-hmm. like it, it's very sort of grippy and sticky yeah and it's like a cat's thing. tongue for anyone who's ever felt shark skin it's very much like a cat's tongue where it's like smooth in one direction and then like sharp and grippy in the other and that smooth sort of sharp grippiness is is sort of so much the book for me that on the one hand it's <laughs> enormously aerodynamic and ferocious and you want to just keep reading it all the time and on the other hand it's you know there's chapters that you just want to be like what and <laughs> yeah. stop with forever so um, so, yeah, I was going to say before we um, before we start talking about some of the themes and stuff of the book, uh, I like to kind of before we do that, because some people probably don't want to listen to that part till they've read it. Um, talk about why we chose this book, which, you know, the, the answer to that is pretty much like we asked Max, what would he want to read? And this came up, <laughs> I think I think is how that happened. Uh, maybe maybe we mentioned this book first, um, but also. What are kind of like similar books? Like if someone likes what books, then like they would like this book, like kind of, you know, what people will like this book and what folks might find like, oh, it's actually not that interesting to me. Well, um, it fits very squarely in the sort of post cyberpunk um, postmodern tradition where those, those are sort of convergent streams. Right. So to the extent that the that um, for the last 20 years, Thomas Pynchon has been writing more like Neil Stevenson and Neil Stevenson has been writing more like Thomas Pynchon. It's in that kind of universe. It's also um, very clearly inflected by um, uh, the experience of reading Cloud Atlas. I think Nick Harkway has actually talked about that a little bit, his sort of um revelatory experience reading cloud atlas and realizing that you could get that complicated and experimental with the form of the kind of grippy page turner novel that's cool i was actually going to mention cloud atlas as if you like that book or movie (laughs) Um, something (laughs) a phenomenal underrated movie like all of all of theirs (laughs) i really need to see that that one actually i i loved the book a lot and i only honestly picked up the book because i knew the movie was going to come out but then i never went back and saw the movie oh i i'm a huge (laughs) wachowski stan and like love every single one of their movies and that was a really great movie that unfortunately was released 
the weekend of Hurricane Sandy. And so Ooh. no one went to see it on the East Coast. Oh, it no. made like nine million dollars in its opening weekend and then just disappeared, which is really I mean, unfortunate. I, you know, it's me and a bunch of wonderful, fantastic weirdos on Twitter who are going to go to town for um, for Jupiter ascending. Oh, yeah. Yup. <laughs> Jupiter sending rules. It's so great. It is, I've it is been, the science fiction classic of the modern age. I've been saving that one because I've seen all of their other films and I really loved Sense8. My uh, partner and I watched Sense8 and we really enjoyed that. And so I've been saving Jupiter Ascending for a rainy day. I, I haven't watched Sense8. I was one of those who felt quite burned by the last two Matrix sequels. So it's it, it, it's been a constant <laughs> joyful surprise every time I encounter one of the Wachowski's films or projects later on because i loved all of them i would revisit the matrix sequels because they're good actually oh that's a that's a bold (laughs) statement i would love to have that conversation (laughs) that is extremely bold they may be bolder than than this uh moment (laughs) the matrix sequels are good don't at me we should we should also i mean later on i'll talk to you about sense eight I'm not a yeah. big fan of that. Yeah, I feel I feel like <laughs> I really we're we're, we're now we're now the Wachowski <laughs> podcast. We do you guys do the thing? Do you guys do the thing where you um, find yourself losing the specific verbs that are associated with content with hashtag content in this the year of our whatever 2018? Yes. What do you like mean I exactly? Found, I found audience, viewer, player, reader, like oh, just the same. Yeah, it's just the same. The, yeah. The reader of your video yeah. game is a conversation that or the phrase that has come out of my mouth. Yeah. In, yeah. Like business context. I mean, hashtag content is like a dystopian, you know, situation. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think ties into po- this novel. Yeah. Po- postmodernity is socially constructed just like race and witchcraft. And in the same way, it is real. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So I, I think I think it's so if you, if you want to position Noman, I think those books are really strong and important books to position it against. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, there's there's other stuff that's going on here, too. Um, that's, one actually. Sorry, I'm going to jump no, in. Really quick. One, one idea that I had and I don't know. Again, I'm pretty early in it, but it reminds me a lot of. Um, David Martin's Wittgenstein's Mistress and other sort of like experimental post-apocalypse fiction, even though it's Mm -hmm. not post-apocalyptic itself, there's definitely um, maybe Dahlgren is another one. There's, there's this like, Mm. there's this like Dahlgren is a good comparison. Yeah. Go for it. Sorry. No, no problem. Um, There's this, this kind of like thing in like, like postmodern experimental literature that specifically deals with kind of like the breakdown of stuff. And mm-hmm. that's often, you know, mm. it can be horror in the case of house of leaves, or it can be, you know, kind of like post-apocalyptic, like, like Wittgenstein's mistress. But I think that there's, he's definitely playing with that same thing mm. that shows up in all of the, in all of these books, you know, house of leaves also with the like typography and like typesetting being really important is another one there. Maybe. Yeah. I think that Dahlgren is a pretty good comp actually, even though it didn't jump to mind for me at first. Um, also because, and like a lot of Chip Delaney's work, it's dealing with situations that may on the surface feel sort of dystopian and weird, but it's treating them as not comfortable isn't quite the right word, but as sort of social realities for the people who are experiencing them, which means that they're not 
sort of uniformly monotexturally horrible. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on in Nomen that starts to feel kind of dystopian or creepy, but the world also makes a strong case for itself. And there are humans who do things like go to rock concerts and have, you know, library story hour and are interested in meeting other humans for date adjacent activities, <laughs> all stuff that you would actually be happening in a real world that is often missing from the kind of explicit dystopias like um, 1984, for example, is, you know, totally. dating seems impossible in 1984. Yeah. And yeah. that is something that that is something that Delaney does really well, too, which I hadn't thought of before. That's really that's that's cool. I like that. Uh, something that it reminded me of, which is maybe I, a couple things that reminded me of that that are maybe maybe not as similar to it mm -hmm. as the stuff that you've mentioned. But I did think of them when I was reading one is David Lynch. Mm, yeah, but mm -hmm. to some extent and, and for some of the same reasons, you know, experimental playing with the form of narrative. But also there's a certain, at least sometimes in the book, there's a way that idea, ideas of, um, of where one's consciousness rests and almost like, you know, a more uh, a sort of European continental philosophical kind of exploration of um, uh, the I, uh, mm -hmm. where, the, where the I is located versus the, where the subject is located versus the object, mm -hmm. uh, where the consciousness is versus the observed th the thing observed by the consciousnesses um that kind of stuff is explored too and 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 then the connection between that kind of stuff and ideas of what is comfortable and what is uncomfortable something I like something that you know mm. david lynch plays with and also david foster wallace big admirer of david lynch they both of them you know, sort of play with this a little uh with regard to you know current world or near future world how does it feel like not just you know, what is the sort of social effect of being of, of technology giving us new capabilities to um, connect people to each other to the extent that maybe they even feel like a new kind of organism, not just like what's the new social reality that comes out of that, but also how does it feel? Does it feel comfortable? Yeah. Does it feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. Where is the line between comfort and discomfort in there? Now that you mention it, that makes um, Nalo Hopkinson also a pretty interesting comp title for mm. this book, right? So you've got a book like Brown Girl in the Ring, which is a mm. very, you could sort of call it an urban fantasy, even though that lends a whole, has a whole bunch of other baggage that I'm not sure I want to bring into this conversation. But it's a book that's set in a kind of crumbling late 21st century Toronto and it's about a sort of magical struggle that's going on there. But the construction of that crumbling Toronto is so um, rich and textured. You really feel it as a comfortable lived environment for the central characters who are sort of... If you're they're they're sort of far away from the sort of glittering cybertech upper class that's usually sort of occupying the some of the focus of narratives like this. Um, there are people who are you know building small farms and getting by and who know everyone on their block um, in uh, you know emigrant communities, very diverse, very complicated, um, sort of 
the cool urban root community as opposed to the kind of elite that we get to see a little bit elsewhere in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to think reading Noman, for example, where we get some of the kind of central bureaucratic angle on things. Um, you know, what's the lived experience of someone in the London that this book is painting um, in, in the world of the, the system of the witness? Mm. It's really cool that you mentioned, um, I don't know how to pronounce her name, right? Nalo Hopkinson, is that yeah. right? Um, we had Tobias Bakel on the, uh, on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Oh, great. Oh, he's he so great. He talked about her. He's the he best. recommended her works. He's really and uh, he is cool. He's a cool <laughs> he guy. He's so, so great to talk to. Yeah. He's like amazing. I just, you know, sit and listen to him about shit for yeah. Yeah. And that's so what great. we got to do pretty much. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. It's good synergy there. <laughs> also, that sounds like I need to read that book. <laughs> yeah. Brown Girl in the Ring. Yeah. Brown Girl right. in the Ring. Yes. Yes. Excellent book. The one thing, because we've talked so much about all these various experimental books, some of which are like hard to read, but I think it's it's worth noting that like while it's super experimental, like we said, it also just really grabs you in. And I think is mm-hmm. um I actually I have a quote here from Nick Harkaway that I thought kind of summed this up, which is um I have limited patience with novels which are deliberately without plot or character. When you're telling someone a story and you're walloping them secretly with all the things you believe about the universe and trying to change their mind, you owe them the bloody book, which I think is like a good, (laughs) he does a good job of balancing this like experimental weird structure stuff with just like plot and like doing plot really well. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I love that quote. I, I, the, the, an interesting contrast to that quote is the 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 another book that or another person who this book reminded me of, which is Italo Calvino. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I thought a lot about um, Invisible Cities and uh, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. You know, at least so far as I've been reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yet, you know, I mean, there's there are one criticism that I have heard made of Italo Calvino is that there's not enough of that gripping plot action. This mm-hmm. book does not have that issue at all there's no <laughs> no worries about gri- lack of gripping plot if you think you will not find a gripping plot you are mistaken well <laughs> one of the one of the um things that kept me going so much was not just the gripping plot but the kind of meta awareness mm, right. of what books like this often do like mm-hmm. if i may are we are we concerned about spoilers for like Infinite Jest, for example? Nah, go ahead. Nah, okay, it's been like thirty years. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> do it. Do it. Okay, so so um, Infinite Jest does this thing where it is entirely possible to read the book as an enormous sort of page turnery thriller. Yeah, like yeah there is totally. a thriller plot that's going on yeah. in the background of the tennis stuff and the halfway house stuff. There's like right. a legit plot to destroy America slash the world slash human consciousness that is right. being carried out by fanatical wheelchair assassins. It's <laughs> it, it's it's a techno thriller. It's yeah. just yeah. a techno thriller that doesn't tend to get talked about as a techno thriller. Mm-hmm. And it's written with sensitivity to the beats of that story. But Wallace's sort of convictions about literature slash state of mind after writing 1400 pages of Infinite Jest was such that he chooses to end the book right before a decent amount of the obligatory techno thriller payoff stuff happens. Mm -hmm. So the first experience that I had after finishing it was like, wait, what? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I had this sort of unfolding realization that, well, I can figure out literally everything that happens next. Like I know all exactly. of it. Mm-hmm. It would mm-hmm. just be an exercise yeah. for him and spending 600 pages writing things I know already. Right. Um, so you can, you can do the tying up yourself. It's just, it chooses to end in a character's dream inside a hallucination <laughs> in a hospital, like in mid sentence, basically it, it chooses to end in flashback. Um, so that's, uh, that's an example where it's sort of satisfying, but often when books try to get like big and metatextual in this way, um, there comes a moment, and this is all over, say, Thomas Pynchon, there comes a moment where you realize, wait a second, this motherfucker is messing with me. Like, yeah. all of these conspiracies don't converge. All this metatextual, like, oh, that person's right. saying the right. same thing as that person over there. That doesn't, it's, it's giving you the suggestion of meaning, the intimation of meaning right. with the point of right. undermining our sense that all of this stuff is, is sort of meaningful. And so I found myself in suspense as I was reading this book between the feeling that it's... Which is it going to be? Which is it going to be? Is this going to like give me the techno thriller payoff? And it, or is it going to give me that metafictional payoff? And what part of me that's so excited by this book is going to be just grievously disappointed or is he going to find some way out of that tension? And I don't, don't know. Say, don't say, don't say. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. I can't wait to find out. I'm not going to say. Attention. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is making me want to finish this book so hard. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Uh, Matt's just going like, to leave and start reading oh, the book. I, I'm, like, re- I'm like reading it right now, not listening to you guys. Like, <laughs> he has literally wrested the copy of the book no, from no, my no. hands. No, no, no. Um, I, that made me think of like five different things. So put them on the stack. So, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so 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 one thing that you talk about there is which is really interesting to me is that you know one of the this this thing that that like books that sometimes get called postmodern will do mm-hmm. where they set up a payoff and then don't give it to you and i think to some extent that is very intentional and that is part of the that is yeah. that is what they that is their answer to that question their answer to that question which i think is a legitimate thing to be discussed is that you know when we set up we we set up a very complicated set of characters and references and let you think that there might be some kind of overarching uh, narrative that really does connect them in a way that makes sense. Um, And then we don't give that to you in the end. It actually doesn't quite match. It's more things refer, there are dangling reference where you might have expected connections. Mm -hmm. Um, And the point then that we get from that is that you know, in, in some sense, that's what they are saying the real world is. The real world is not the, the, the world as we see it now from our from our perch, you know, post uh, the uh, post high modernity. Uh, the world as we see it now is is not amenable to narrativization. We, you know, we, we can't just look around and draw a bunch of connections and then feel satisfied by the story that has emerged from that. We can't. And so. What do we, how do we feel about that? Let's investigate that. That feeling of can'tness, that lack of satisfaction is the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I find so exciting about this book, um, that it, it is moving a very long way towards a response to that critique, right? So the, um, and I, I do kind of want to call out like the, um, pretty whelming, I'm not sure overwhelming, but definitely whelming whiteness <laughs> of this kind of postmodern yeah. formal experimentation, which like, well, is, it's, it's important that we mention Delaney. Delaney is somebody yeah. who's very involved 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely true. But I think that like it, it, it intrigues me. And I think this may just be a, one reason for it might be a reflection of the, um, the sort of like historical time period that a lot of this stuff took place in. Exactly. And, and these like strong publishing trends where, mm-hmm. you know, if you're having to fight to even be heard or to tell any kind of story whatsoever in the world, right. you're less likely to tell, um, a, a story that's sort of about the weirdness of stories. You're maybe less likely to try things that are big and experimental. I mean, obviously you've got like Ralph Ellison who's writing, I mean, Invisible Man is a phenomenally postmodern and experimental work, but so I, I don't know. More recently, I mean, I think of people like Teju Cole. Teju Cole yeah. comes to mind as somebody right. okay. who, it's not, he doesn't, he's not sort of doing something that's super similar to Noman, but he's definitely playing in with postmodernity and, the nature of self-object distinctions and like some similar stuff that's that's really interesting and cool yeah. and maybe tickles the same fancies, you know. So just having having sort of brought that up because I think it is kind of important in conversations Definitely. like this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that um, so if we can sort of loosely and very foolishly class modernism as this kind of explain everything the like Joycean hope that you will be able to actually capture all of Dublin between two co- <laughs> sort of slats of cardboard. And uh, yeah. what, what was the quote that he wanted some sort of alien to be able to reconstruct yeah. Dublin from yeah. Ulysses. Yeah. Um, then the sort of postmodern, very loose angle of but you can't do that like there's just no single perspective there is no god perspective that you can impose everything is fractured everything is broken um and this is also where you get a lot of great sort of post-colonial pushback literature Mm -hmm. Um, this is like an Mm -hmm. angle that marquez Mm -hmm. is coming from this is an angle that um this is an angle that the afrofuturists are absolutely coming from right right you know, it's like, oh, I don't, you know, your, your feeling of dislocation is, is all well and good, but like, let's actually talk about some more real, <laughs> this more, you know, from some people's perspective, more serious dislocation. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about, you know, or let's, or let's take those, let's take the tropes that you're playing with and use them to talk about our experience instead, yeah. you know, instead of this, instead of associating post-modern, postmodern, um, settings and characters and a certain kind of like 60s 70s ish disaffection with modern world the, the the current world instead of associating that with like sort of you know young white people from the suburbs let's associate that with somebody who isn't that kind of person and 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 like you know okay well if if um if if we're going to talk about dis Dissoci- feelings of dissociativity and feelings of like wondering about the distinction between self and other and and how does a relationship get constructed in a world with ridiculous technology that connects people instantly um you know maybe uh maybe we'll do that in service of um narratives that try to like i it makes me think of um of uh um, Octavia Butler, who, who, uh, you know, um, whose, uh, work I've only gotten into recently, but who is a great example, not of somebody investigating postmodernity per se, but of somebody who's taking, who's like taking some of these tools that other people have left lying down or like inventing her own that are similar and, and then applying them to a totally different experience. I mean, okay, let's have a, let's talk about, um, Let's talk about space and constructing society. Let's talk about multi-millennial narratives, like you know, foundation style, Asimov style, or, or uh, you know, or uh, you know, new type, new types of relationships that are made possible by a new technology, Heinlein style. But let's do it 
with reference to Africa, right. with our main mythological references pointing in that direction instead. Well, and you also have this sort of observation that, you know, there are a lot of people on this planet for whom the experience of being invaded by aliens is like 100% yeah. a lived experience. This is something right. that is within lifetime this is this is within history you've got yas's work right uh, cuban science fiction oh, author yeah. yas like using science fictional tropes to talk so so you get to to talk about like the experience that the experience of, is a surreal experience of being mm. sort of um and it is a breaking of that any kind of presumed modernist perspective the experience mm. of being subject to colonialism the experience of yeah. being settler colonized all this kind of stuff so that that's also all in this like no one coherent narrative can yeah. emerge in fact the thought of one coherent narrative emerging is itself kind of colonial is itself kind of an imperial perspective so like messing with the modernist sort of imperial eye or like attempt at constructing a holistic vision because that's necessarily sort of an imperial project right and yeah. so in that you get books like Noman, which are trying to go one step further and say okay that response the response to that imperial mission of the kind of modernists is to break it apart. But then we have a bunch of pieces on the ground. So how can we construct a narrative that's something more than just a bunch of pieces on the ground? And the attempt here and in sort of books like it, I think, is to create a mosaic instead, to try to really firmly inhabit and understand and try to live through a bunch of different perspectives on a complicated reality and try to not force them all into consilience, but to... Um, to use them to inform one another to create a whole that's much larger than any single angle would allow. Right. And I think that's where the David Mitchell comparison works really nicely as well. Um, I, you know, even more than Cloud Atlas to a degree, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoet, which is, you know, very much about this like, not even multiculturalism, but like taking different cultural points of view and like mosaicing together a story that like just from one point of view wouldn't actually like work as a story. Mm -hmm. um, and, but manages to work as like a bunch of different stories when you take like multiple yeah. points of view. It's cool. I love that book. Yeah, that's I, my, and I probably I, I my favorite say, of his. Yeah, I should say I think actually that that is that is probably also my favorite David Mitchell book. Um, but, you know, it's. I, I do I do want to take a second to to, to talk a little bit more about because I think one of the things that 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 you just said Max which is is uh, I would like I sort of want to emphasize I guess which is the that there are you know there are different kinds of reactions to I'm almost like rephrasing what you've just said I, I don't, this is not not a new point but it's like there are you know there's uh there's a sort of set of problems that we're presented with out of what the what the modern world looks like and uh, we feel you know maybe bad in certain ways about this and then there are different kinds of strategies that different types of authors have adopted to try to address this and one set of strategies has to do with kind of investigating the nature of narrative itself and just trying trying to deconstruct and explode everything and then that kind of explodey style strategy has been adopted not just by people like thomas pynchon and David Foster Wallace and David Lynch, these sort of like guys who, you know, broadly speaking are, uh, you know, white Americans from the suburbs, not literally, but th that's, that's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, one way to think about that, that, 
you know, category. That's one way to categorize them. And then there's other people that are coming at it from a very different angle. There's the, you know, I, I, I don't want to use, uh, people from disadvantaged communities, people from the targets of imperialist communities. Um, how are they going to explode these narratives? Um, I really like, uh, I really like a book called 10 billion days and hundred billion nights by Ryu Mitsuse, mm-hmm. who's a Japanese science fiction author, whose mission in, to some extent in writing the book was to, this is a book, it's a science fiction book from the 1960s. Um, his, and it, you know, in some sense, it's like at the same time, Pynchon was writing the mm-hmm. crying of law 49, this book was being written in Japan by a guy who was trying to, um, take some of the classic sci-fi tropes. He grew up loving science fiction, golden age, silver age science fiction. He wanted to take that and he wanted to demonstrate that you didn't, that you could just do something totally different with the same set of tools. So there's the, there's a whole set of mm-hmm. traditions, you know, in different communities around the world of people, um, responding differently. But then, you know, there's, so there's, there's the modern problems and then different result. There's postmodern problems and then different strategies for trying to deal with postmodern problems. But then there's, there are, then there are people who perhaps disagree about the nature of the problem itself. And that's another element of this. I mean, I think no one is a book that is in dialogue, not just with, um, other books about, that other books that are experimental and other books that are dealing with, you know, postmodern stuff. It's also a book in dialogue with books that are talking about politics today. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. saying something to those, it, you know, books that are talking like science fiction that talks about politics today, science fiction that talks about the nature of what dystopia is going to look like mm-hmm. in 10 years, science fiction that tries to have a message about what we should be afraid of and what we shouldn't be afraid of. Yeah. It's in dialogue with those books that aren't POMO. Right. As well as the books that are POMO. That's a really good point. So in that case, I mean, Malka Older's Infomocracy trilogy is yeah. absolutely relevant for this as another yeah. kind of tech-informed surveillance state. I mean, it's weird even to talk about state in the context of infomocracy, <laughs> but the sort of hyper-surveillance or, or sort of pervasive information technology um, kind of universe that we're heading towards um, and that sort of highly divergent um, levels of privacy and, and law uh, so infomocracy and sequels are absolutely relevant for this book in that case. Right. I was actually thinking of Ada Palmer's work. Yes, while also true. Too. Kind of for the, the, the exact same reason as infomocracy. Like, like I think of Ada Palmer and uh, Malka Older's like novels kind of in the same sentence. Like whenever one pops up in my head, yeah. like the other does, because they are both these sort of like uh, like middle future kind of like like, you know, really like changing the way we think about politics and saying like okay like we've been you know doing these different political projects for all this time like and you know we can't like you know during the the age of kings and queens like democracy was difficult to even envision what that would look like and both of those books i think are saying like okay well in the age of democracy like the next thing is difficult to envision what that even looks Mm. like and let's you know they take it in slightly different directions but they do this thing of like let's pause it very different like political and moral systems of thought mm-hmm. in the future instead of just in the past and just pretend that like we've hit the end of history here mm. like we haven't we're gonna like you know break through at some point and both of them what? are <laughs> and both of them like nomon are based to some extent on this pervasive 
like information technology, the really pervasive surveillance and information. And, um, you know, when it comes to Nomon, I think particularly like machine learning and the ability yeah. for, you know, machines to just gobble up insane amounts of data and make sense out of them. Um, and I think, I think those, you know, particularly, uh, infomocracy, which is, you know, like about that as politics and as like a political thriller within that, um, is, is kind of an interesting, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Those, those books just like, I mean, both, I was me. thinking about them while reading this one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wasn't thinking about them, but I should have been, that makes total sense. I, I think the, 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 just to sum up, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different things this book is in dialogue with. It's in dialogue with them mm -hmm. partly because of its format, partly because of the nature of the questions it wants to answer, and also partly because it is a political book in some sense. And so any other book that is interested in political questions is in dialogue with it. Yep. Yes. <sighs> cool. Um, so did we want to hit on, you know, we've hit on a lot of these different like themes that we were talking about doing. Do we want to maybe talk about specifically like surveillance now, or should we save that for the post read when we can, you know, talk about it really in depth. Like, I don't know if there's more we want to say that's like not spoilery. Well, I think we can talk about surveillance a little bit just to add on to that uh, science fictional yeah. context conversation that Matt was starting just now and that we were carrying forward that um, this like, um, like Palmer's work, like Older's work is playing in kind of the post-cyberpunk space, or maybe even post-post-cyberpunk, yeah. depending on how <laughs> wild we're going to get with our prefixes here. I mean, you've got one of the... Um, you've got the sort of cyberpunk movement, which I think of as a very 80s movement, and then there's some kind of echoes of it in the 90s, like Snow Crash being the real standout example right it's like it's itself being almost a little bit metatextual like obviously both a parody right. but also itself right. cyberpunk yes it, yes you it's it's definitely poking some fun but it's poking fun in this kind of loving just every returning everything up to 11 sort of way <laughs> yeah um you know your, your main character is called hero protagonist and walks around right. with a katana and he's like the best katana fighter on the internet it's right. great well and it's funny it, sorry i'm going yeah. way off the rails yeah. here but it's funny the way in which that book which is kind of poking fun at all the like what was cyberpunk in itself is kind of a little bit post cyberpunk also gets usually trotted out as you know one of the like top two or three works of cyberpunk yeah fiction. yeah absolutely <laughs> I mean, it's 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 as um, likely to be somebody's sort of first pull as Neuromancer, I think. Exactly. Um, I think I think it's those two, and I don't I don't know what comes third, really. The the difference engine, maybe. Yeah, um, which is also kind of right. steampunky. Right. Yeah, but but like it's definitely it's steampunk, certainly just in its in its sort of tropes and its material, yeah. but it's so much of the moment of cyberpunk that I don't know. This is where like. This is where drawing the lines right. gets really fine, right? right? Well, this is where genre is also a social construct yeah. and one that, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's there's more definitions for any one genre than there are readers of that genre. Right. Yes. I mean, yes, everybody has at least three before breakfast. Um, <laughs> they're, they're fun to talk about in this kind of agglutinative way, right? That, you, you know, books become 
books are prisms through which everything else that we've read reflects. And, you know, it's, it's neat to point at colors, all of the colors that the prisms cast, <laughs> but you can also get into real tizzies if you want to talk about which specific shade of blue this one is and where it stops and the next shade right. of blue begins. Right. Or whether um, pink even exists. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so, you know, in Neuromancer, you have this, you have an enormous amount of prophecy or what looks like prophecy now. And Gibson is just talking about the world as he sees it kind of almost outside his window, just with, you know, 30 or 40 years of extra stuff added on. Um, And there's a lot that Neuromancer gets very right if you want to read it as a prophetic book, which I'm not sure that you actually want. Science fiction is always about the moment that the writer is living in, right? Right. I mean, this is the Ursula Kayla Gwynn's like phenomenal essay yes. at the beginning of Left Hand of Darkness, which I always exactly send to people before they read science fiction. Like, no, this is <laughs> it's about now, not the future. Right, right. It's, it's it's not prognostication, even though sometimes you get prognostication from it. So, you know, reading uh, Neuromancer in 2018, there's a lot that strikes you. Um, among them, the fact that televisions don't have dead channels anymore. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> <laughs> when I first read it, I did. I was thinking like, wait, it's blue. Right. Yeah. It's Why is he describing nice. blue that way? <laughs> it's a great, it's a great sky. It's very blue, very blue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you've got, uh, you've got moments like that. And also the fact that even though you have an enormous amount of technology and it really does permeate the entire world and permeates people's bodies, right? Folks with, uh, you know, implanted mirror shades and that kind of thing. You, don't have a great deal of the sort of pervasive surveillance that now feels difficult to dissociate even from our present experience of technology, let alone a likely projection of 20 or 30 years into the future, right? You've got the technology certainly to do it, but everyone isn't carrying around cameras in their pockets and regularly pointing them at everyone else. There are not in any given room six microphones that the CIA may be using <laughs> to spy on you. Um, you every, we he just doesn't even get to the level of what we think of as big data, mm-hmm. right? Or like there is there are enormous gobs of data moving around in Neuromancer, but the notion that you might be able to compute what everyone's doing with all of their credit cards and see patterns in it that you might be able to track literally everyone constantly under all circumstances is not really present in a lot of the cyberpunk literature and maybe missing something but it's it's at least not the focus right and then you get to um older's work where i think the word privacy doesn't even show up um or to palmer's work where there are sort of specific carved out privacy zones that everybody thinks are kind of weird and unsettling. And you know what, you're going to go into a place where you can't be instantly monitored by folks or <laughs> why would you do that? It must be a kink thing or something. Um, <laughs> but they are perhaps okay with it in the way that people might be okay with other people's kinks today. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> exactly. You know, everyone, uh, everyone tries to be very respectful of the fact that you have this <laughs> deeply weird habit. <laughs> Some of my best friends are private people. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, 
Um, so, so, uh, and Noman is on the one hand doing a lot of things that feel cyberpunk, right? There's this sort of deeply invasive brain surgery and memory extraction that can be used to monitor people's sort of habits and make certain that they're not committing grand crimes or whatever. And that can actually apparently change people's behavior. Folks can be rewritten by the surgical process to stop like psychotic breaks or something from happening. Um, and, the witness, the sort of controlling state is initially presented as this very positive force. And I won't say anything more about that, but you have um, its pervasiveness is is really there. There are moments where Miliki Neath, our, um, our sort of point of view character and investigator for some sections of the book, is, you know, sees a random guy walking his dog and kind of thinks he's cute and then figures out what his name is so that she can ask him on a date later maybe or, or register interest in him to see if he will register interest in her and the witness handles all of this and this is an interaction that is described as being as seamless as just seeing him walking down the street so right. you're in this deeply pervasive very low privacy space where even the inside of your own head isn't your own personal property and i feel right. like that has a lot of implications and it's resonant with a lot of the ways that we live in 2018 our anxieties about what how what we say gets used our expectations of privacy or not based on things that we do in the privacy of our own own home but on the internet i think mm -hmm. it's playing with a lot of that material yeah there is a degree to which you know I mean, I think a lot of us being being near the same age, early 30s, you know, kind of like mid millennial, like we've grown up in this state where our expectation is, OK, if you do something on the Internet, then it's public and there's no expectation of privacy. But, you know, also like there's an expectation of privacy like elsewhere in the world. And as like that the 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 you know we grew up there was the virtual and there was the real and those were yeah. two different things and as those two things really collide as everyone has a virtual little machine you know like the iphone that i have in my pocket is literally this like wormhole between the virtual and the real that exists in my pocket and is like on all the time um and, and it's those weird. Two. You can feel the pressure of it, right? Like if I leave my phone <laughs> yeah. into another room, you, you like you feel as though the currents of the magic have shifted slightly. Yeah, anyway, yeah. It's sorry, like oh, I'm sometimes. not. That's very true. It's like I'm too real right now. There's not enough virtual in my life. <laughs> I want to get realer. I'm going to move over <laughs> yeah. here where only my television is. Or right. It's part of the but reason also, that I read books. You know. You, yeah. For real. But the um. The thing that it kind of reminds me of is is folks who are younger than us who don't have that mm -hmm. necessarily expectation of privacy everywhere. In particular, there was recently that, you know, uh, big Twitter kerfuffle where like, a, you know, like a to a couple were like together on a plane, like recording another right. couple meeting on that plane. And the kind of, you know, it's like they're young and they just had no expectation that these other two people would not want their picture taken and tweeted out to like millions of retweets, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's and also a like no one that would go here, viral. Yeah. Right. It, you know, yeah, it, but the, no, but that's not true because it was going viral and they were continuing doing oh, it. as it was happening really? yes yes Already? oh for sure for oh sure for sure they got really big and they kept that's why they kept up with the story because of how big <laughs> it had gotten um and so i think there's you know 
it's really like you easy owe to an apology see... at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> there is, it is really interesting to watch, you know, given that kind of trend line, it's really easy to see how you get to a world of the witness and Nomon where, you know, granted the main character is a cop. So she has very specific ideas about what she's doing being good. Um, but you know, no one speaks about the like dangers of privacy, or at least the people who do are like weirdos, right? Everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, the 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 machine loves me and you know mm-hmm. it will fix me. <laughs> you know, it's like this constant pervasive, you know, it's not surveillance even, it's just like more abilities that I otherwise wouldn't have. In the same way that Facebook doesn't feel like you know, surveillance, it feels like the ability to talk to my dad more easily. Yeah, that's exactly it. And he does such a good job in that first um, chapter of giving you all of the details that you need to see how pervasive the system is and what the depth of its impact might be. But in a way that at least I was sitting there for the first, you know, 60, 70 pages, sort of nodding my head thinking, oh, yeah, okay, this is for, (laughs) wow, what a neat system. That sounds like a little unsettling, but I I can see how people are having a good time with it and, and all that. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny to compare the um that experience with privacy to like the early days of the automobile um mm-hmm. if you roll back the tape to 1920 there's this great um editorial cartoon called the american moloch and it's this vivid and visceral um line drawing of children being sacrificed like with knives on the altar of the automobile because (laughs) the the narrative was and the truth was that there were just automotive fatalities by the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands that were starting cars still the leading cause of death in america yeah they are you know cars and heart disease i think i might be getting those those flipped but yeah yeah and the thing is at that point, cars hadn't been a part of our experience. So mm-hmm. when they became so popular and it became very clear that cars just involved tens of thousands of people dying who wouldn't have mm-hmm. otherwise died, like all cars mortality goes up, human beings dead, children dead. That was a really hard pill to swallow i mean it's mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's weird to think about now because we're so used to the fact that human beings are driving around in two-ton missiles at 80 miles an hour and we're going to trust that to anybody who can functionally get a library card right like mm-hmm. if you asked me absent any other social factors um you know max i'm going to let you drive a this a sort of two-ton object at 80 miles an hour down a street with a bunch of other people doing that at the same time, do you think that you're, you have the responsibility to manage something like that? And I'd be like, <laughs> fuck no, I, I would back up. And right. I mean, that's the interesting that cartoon so, is like no less relevant today. It's just that we've all made our decision, which is like, yeah, that's fine. That's it. Exactly. A bunch of people will die and it's fine. Yeah. Convenient and necessary at this point. Right. We've made that decision as a society. And that's a chilling thing. If you think about it, that we as a culture 
any culture is perfectly capable of making the decision that a few that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths are necessary to make things work slightly more efficiently or whatever. It's it's also really interesting to think about that point in relation to like <clears throat> the the techno the, the the particular technology that we talk about matters a great deal mm -hmm. when we think about this kind of thing because as it happens surveillance while perhaps connected to mortality in some sense mm -hmm. is much less directly connected to mortality True. than mm -hmm. driving a missile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so and there are a lot of things that fall into the category of being less directly connected to mortality. And those things, nonetheless, like cars, are things we choose to be OK with or not. Yeah. And it's it's just up to us collectively. And and like the, your ability to opt out is is part of this, like how much people will be able to opt out of the technology is part of the discussion as well. I mean, today, if you want to not have a car in America you need to live in a place where rent is probably really high. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult thing for a lot of people. And cars are expensive too, but they're probably less expensive in general, like in a lot of places, like then the mm -hmm. rent would be, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can get a used car for two grand. It's yeah. not yeah. necessarily going to last you for a long time, but yeah. Nonetheless. Nonetheless. You know, say you have a lease and you get your payments and whatever, your payments are going to, you know, you, you, you could probably manage it, you know, Compare that to living in San Francisco right. or New York City. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, for example, don't have a car. I haven't driven for a really long time, such that if someone was to ask me to drive to the grocery store, I would have severe trepidation about it. I still technically have a driver's license. Um, and part of that, I can get away with that because I live in a pretty high rent area with a lot of access to public transit in a city that really prioritizes public transit. So... Uh, you know, when I'm breaking down my budget, I amortize that against the like monthly cost of a new or close to new car. But I mean, if I'm comparing and, and so I can, I feel like I'm getting kind of a premium by deducting the car insurance and the gas and all of that stuff from what I have to pay every month. And then, it, then my rent starts to look a lot more reasonable. But if I'm comparing that to somebody who has the very real experience of like, you know, driving $2,000 used car to and from work every day, like it's, you know, you, there, there's a lot of America that's set up to use the car. Um, that's the, like our dominant interface paradigm for a lot of things. And that makes for a really cool comparison to um, the way that privacy is handled in a book like Nomen. Um, I think that we see very early on in Nomen that the kind of, what we, what we would think of as like slow culture, privacy-based culture, the reading of a book and the fact that your internal experience of that book is inaccessible to the person who's sitting next to you, the fact that you can't let's play stream your novel. Um, that's weird in the context of that book. That's a strange social decision in the context of this book. And yeah, that, the, the difficulty of opting out and, and the social valence of opting out, what that means yeah. for you is something that's really it, well It makes drawn me here. think of computers in general. Um, yeah. You know, there's this uh, commonplace among people of our generation that people of an older generation who don't know how to use computers are funny. Isn't it funny mm -hmm. that my grandpa doesn't know how to use a computer? If you go on Reddit, you'll see countless jokes or Twitter or wherever. You'll see countless jokes about um, grandma not knowing how to use a computer. Isn't that hilarious? But if you think about it, mm -hmm. we've, I mean, it's the same thing as this, the world depicted in this book. I mean, you, we've constructed a society where if you don't want to use a computer, for example, if you want to live the way people, everybody lived 40 years ago, 
with paper and pencil, maybe a fax machine, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. hardcover books, whatever. If you want to live that way, you can't. Or you can, but only by making a lot of other sacrifices. And right. people will think you're hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is a lot what it's like, because the, the, in, that, in that case as well, the, the sort of mortality is a little bit disaggregated. I mean, you know, the decision to not want to use a computer, for example, just, just it, it took me a second to even conceptualize that because that is so foreign. I, yeah. I like you, I, like you guys, I mean, and perhaps like other people of our generation, cars are something I have thought about living without. You know, I have, right. there've been periods of my life where I've had one and periods where I haven't. It's something, you know, that, that kind of boundary is more porous, but the boundary between using a computer and not using a computer is so firm. I mean, it, it really feels hard to cross in this way. It's even hard to think about crossing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I wonder if, if, if cars felt like that to our parents, grandparents' generation. Yeah, possibly. Right. I mean, my parents, for example, yeah, yeah. One thing that kind of is is interesting to me in this conversation, and specifically about like this transition from not cars to cars, is that, I mean, you you mentioned Max that you're reading Robert Caro's The Power Broker right now, and I I live literally in the shadow of Robert Moses. Like I live <laughs> next to some of his like biggest public works projects, um, the BQE, the the Triborough Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I swim at a swimming pool that he made, like you know, all the time in the summer. Um, and you know, one of the things about that book, or or looking at the you know like uh, interstate highway system, is that like the reason that we use cars the way we do in America is because the government decided that's how American mm-hmm. society would work because people yeah. like Robert Moses or FDR decided like we need highways. We need to build our cities around highways. We need to, you know, like build infrastructure this way and then people will have to live their lives within this way. Um, and the same, you know, I, I think like as I was thinking about this initially, one of my thoughts was like, oh, well, the difference here is that, you know, it's like government surveillance versus just like, you know, people choosing to use cars or not. And then I, as the more I thought about it, it's like, no, people choosing to use cars, they choose that within the like government designed world that they live live in, you know, yeah, and it's the right. same thing with the surveillance here, especially like Nomon style of like, you know, a surveillance state. The one thing that's kind of interesting and maybe different is like the American style of like surveillance capitalism yeah. where surveillance is like marketing. It's actually there's probably a lot less government surveillance than like most people assume that there is on you in your day to day life. And a lot more exactly. surveillance. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And that's that's like even more unsettling in, in some ways um, because for one thing, all of that non-government surveillance is functionally government surveillance at the end of a subpoena, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The government can get any of it if they want to. Right. On a legal basis, um, any company that's tracking anything of you is just subject to a subpoena. Um, On the other side of it is that you have, without wanting to get terribly grim, I've been thinking about the sort of Italian fascist convergence of private industry and government, the sort of what does it mean when your corporation, your sort of corporate bureaucracy and your government bureaucracy start interpenetrating or interweaving. And it's, 
interesting to try to point to modern economies. And I don't think you can often uh, where that doesn't happen, right? Mm. I mean, the development of the car is a really interesting example. Exactly. You have what's good for General Motors is good for the nation. <laughs> right. Well, and now what's good for ExxonMobil is good for the, you know, foreign policy of our nation. Right, right. Exactly. And, you know, what's good for, what's good for Facebook may or may not be what's good for <laughs> some nation somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> greatest uh, failure was the failure to identify his project with any particular nation state. <laughs> 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 or you know he's he's thinking bigger man he's thinking uh, he clearly is anyway yeah right. and it, you yeah, were saying but 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 just that actually the the sort of fact that the government sets the conditions under which markets operate but then the markets generate capital and generate profits that then can be used to form the governmental reality um so you get this circle in ostensibly a democracy or a democratic republic where um, the money is kind of chasing itself around through power and large industry. And yeah. um, that's, an, it, it's weird thinking of all of these tech sector questions in light of the automotive industry questions a hundred years ago. But the, I, I, this is not a metaphor that I've spent a lot of time thinking about before this conversation, but I think <laughs> the echoes are pretty strong. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, as folks are reading the book, it it's worth it's worth as you know as the main character you know makes the choice to be surveilled like mm -hmm. thinking about like the context that she's making that choice within because it's easy for us to think about that context because it's not the context that we live and breathe yep. you know it's the like the old like you know the fish like what's water joke yeah like like you know we can see her water because we're like above it in, you know, in like the atmosphere, but like, it's maybe worth asking, like, what's, what's your water? Like use that to like contextualize kind of your own lived experience and ask about that. Cause I think that, you know, again, like these books are at the end of the day about now, like yeah. Nick Harkaway doesn't know what the future he's not, uh, clairvoyant like he doesn't know what the future holds so like his books are about now at the end of the day and it's probably a worthwhile you know like look at now through that through that lens I mean that's I, that's the whole point of like me doing this podcast <laughs> at the end of the day is like look at now through these various different science fictional lenses so I may be preaching to the choir a little bit <laughs> no I think that's a really good point Adrian I mean I think that's one of the powers of science fiction as a toolbox. Um, it's built to allow us to try to allow us to see our site outside of ourselves. That's the kind of big revelation of, uh, the new wave and the sort of generations leading up to the new wave, right? That it's not just about how, what kind of weirdo things might be possible with this technology or say physics worked this way. What would it mean? It's well, let's try to get ourselves a little, unfamiliar with the stuff that's literally around us right now. What, what does the world look like through a glass darkly? How can we take things that we see and use the power of metaphor to remove them from a familiar context and investigate the ways that they kind of gouge into people that we might be overlooking or ignoring or purposefully not thinking about? Mm -hmm. 
in our one day thing, to day. Yeah. One thing I think about with regards to that is the way that uh, sci-fi authors, at least I think of them doing this. They may not think of themselves doing this. Perhaps you could answer whether you think of yourself as doing this or not. <laughs> you know, your uh, sci-fi author is almost building a set of tools that people can use to think about their world. And then at the end, you leave them lying on the table and you see hopefully what other people will make of them or not. I mean, so many real um, pieces of technology or real social realities were constructed only after having been imagined and then having had that imaginary spread around by other people. We think about, you know, I mean, there's a classic touchscreen Star Trek example, but there's countless others. Rockets um, were imagined generations before they were built. And rockets is often cited, rockets are often cited, and the space race is often cited as an example of a very, very contingent set of technological developments. You could easily imagine a world in the 20th century where rocket technology was never developed to the extent that it was. Mm -hmm. And we simply didn't ever get, or didn't get till much later, the satellite infrastructure that we have now, or people going to space, or any of the science that's resulted from people going to space. So much of it goes back to a couple of key decisions made by wartime infrastructures in pursuit of World War II era wartime goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, why did they do it? Why did people want rockets? Why did people want a thing like that? Well, maybe it was a little bit because of what they'd read about in H.G. Wells or in Jules Verne or mm-hmm. um, in any of the other imaginary voyages that people had read about before that time. Lois McMaster-Bujold has a great short story called The Borders of Infinity. Um, And it's about a number of things, including a really neat prison break. Um, But one of its points is that um, there's this sort of question of what, if you are, if you believe your world goes so far, just, just to this sort of the edge of this circle, then you'll only ever really want to take action within that circle. You'll think, uh, you know, I will do all of this stuff, and then there's a point beyond which I can't go. Um, And even if you can take action outside of that circle, you're bounded by the definitions of your universe as you see it. And one of the strengths of science fiction and fantasy is that they give you different visions of a universe. They give you broader circles. They allow you to think bigger and think differently. And they give you different angles on your own circle. What seems incredibly small to you might actually be, I don't know, it might be the top of a mountain or the bottom of a pit. It might have a much larger context than you're aware of. And that's kind of the way that I think about the tools angle. You give people ranges of points of view or ranges of visions for how things could go or might be going right now that they're not familiar with already. Mm -hmm. That actually um, reminds me of your own fiction, Max. And I'm realizing as I'm talking about this, you know, we're talking a lot about science fiction, but like the way that you use magic as kind of like a, a an almost like stand in for like finance and law and these other mm-hmm. like, you know, these things that are just like social creations and don't actually like exist in the real world and you make them <laughs> exist in the real world, but then yeah. really make us think about them and the, and the ways in which they don't and in the ways in which like, you know, contracts are kind of magic. You like sign your name on a piece of paper and someone else does a thing for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Well, it, it create the social reality creates reality, sort of informs yeah. physical reality. Um, even social reality can sort of overwrite physical reality in the way that we're sort of we create. Um, certain angles on gender or sexuality right. based on our mm. sort of cultural lens Race. through which we're, yeah, through which yeah. we're viewing whatever biological substrate may or may not exist there. Um, it, so, so yeah, I mean, I, one of the, one of my projects in the craft sequence and one of the things I think a lot of fantasists are doing really is you try to take implicit metaphors and make them explicit physical facts that people can mm -hmm. interact with. And by doing that, you reveal how much those implicit metaphors structure the way that we live and inform the way that we, we relate to the world, like how binding they are as binding as physical law on us. And then it gets you to think about um, social structures and social constructs the same way that you think about physical law. And in that way, I feel like fantasy often takes a lot of the responsibility for social sciences that science fiction often, um, many, much science fiction has historically kind of <laughs> denigrated. Like there's a lot yeah, of, yeah. there's the whole sort of hard SF universe, which is like, tries to conceive of itself as science fiction without anthropology or sociology or pol political science or economics, science fiction divorced from a whole bunch of sciences. Um, yeah. The engine that they, that they use to make their world is an engine that has physics, but nothing else. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and this so, process yeah. is, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, go for it. Yeah. I was just going to say like Matt and I often refer to this process as, literalizing the ways in which like yeah. science fiction We've fantasy speculative fiction like all of it like makes literal these ideas um and like helps you kind of like hold on to them right like in literalizing it makes it a little bit easier to think about and like grapple with them yeah i think that social constructs constructs also tend to retreat from the universe they, they tend to hide themselves right like so much of the language of finance, especially, but also law, presents itself as super boring and inaccessible and technical. Hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that's that's like maliciously constructed camouflage, but there's definitely an. <laughs> It's more like a it's a, it's an object in the world that was created for whatever contingent reasons, but then some people have taken it and built camouflage out of it, and some people have taken it and done something else with it, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it exactly. I think that we have a culture that, for whatever reason, doesn't um, use concrete concepts for its financial universe, like where you know finance is kind of is often seen as this sort of fuzzy thing that's out there somewhere that you have to be really smart to understand. Um, and so most of you don't need to worry about it. Don't, don't bother it. Don't, we're just going to be sitting over here collecting enormous bonuses and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, buying political candidates, it'll, but it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You really, you really don't, it's going to be really hard to think about it that hard. You'll, you'll hurt your brain. Just don't. And, 
I, I think that the language and the tenor of conversation does a lot to reinforce this. Like people are at most encouraged to think about um, economics on the level of retail investing. There's not a great deal of effort paid to making your average American citizen conversant in like how the economy functions and what choices we really have about how we want the economy to function moving forward. We, there, I do think, this may be me just being sort of radical in general, but I don't think it's that radical to say that there are options in economic decision-making and often we get presented a solution as if it is the only technocratically justified and correct opinion. Yeah. Right. Like that we did all of the math and this is the only way that it works versus we looked at the rules of the game and we decided that this was the best strategy. What does best mean? I don't know. Maybe you're going to get shafted by my best. But like anyway, I think we're getting a bit of stray from the conversation. No, I think actually what like you just brought up a point that I'd wanted to make, which is is the the math element of economics in particular like i i work in in technology and i think this is also true in like computer science and this kind of thing it's um i i'm <laughs> we'll see if i make this make sense by the end of the sentence <laughs> uh, but there's like this way in which you know it's like we present it, it as like oh the economists are doing math and so they're doing something real mm-hmm. um <laughs> and then there's is math real. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, this well, that's a little bit where I'm going with this. And then there's also this element of like, you know, to tie in another piece of this conversation. Like, I think one thing that people tend to to like in a lot of different ways get wrong about postmodernism is they hear someone say that you know, like, gender is a social construct, right? Or like something, mm-hmm. whatever it is, is a social construct. And they hear that, and they hear it's not real. Mm, right and like that's not what that actually means (laughs) right yeah (laughs) no that just means it's malleable (laughs) that means you can transform it according to these principles it doesn't mean it doesn't exist exactly these are it's directing you to the principles by which you can affect it no no that's that's exactly it matt and i think that you know sometimes like there's this tension where like we will you know believe in economics because math is real as if there's no social (laughs) construct to like why and what economics we choose to use and nor no social construct as to like what math we choose to use, like even within those economic systems. So, um, I'm not sure if I totally pulled that together. (laughs) No, that that makes perfect sense. I completely agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, To me as well. It makes total sense. You know, there's a, there's a, and this, by the way, is, it may seem far afield from the book. It is not. This is all very, very relevant to this book. (laughs) This is actually true. That's 100% accurate. There is in fact a straight up math econ character. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. There's a there are a number of reasons why there are numbers on the cover of the American edition of the hardcover book. Um, one of them is that math is relevant to the story, and 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 that these questions of these questions of it's almost like related to a question of language. Just it is just so I, let me let me try to sort of make a a couple of points in at once. Um, Go for it. The book is very interested in language and how we how we uh, assign. Um, meaning to things and how we assign not just uh, reference to a referent, but reference to reference, if that makes any sense. Um, and the book is also interested in the way that um, 
there are multiple ways of uh, considering reality. One way of considering reality is natural language. There's also mathematics, which is another kind of broad basket of approaches that we can use. And there are others beyond that, that, that perhaps you might argue the book is interested in as well, a kind of subconscious, kind of almost Lacanian or, or Jungian subconscious style approach to conceptualizing meaning, which perhaps is yet another thing. But with regards to language and math, I mean, if you think about political questions like we've been talking about, um, there is no, as soon as you consider politics, um, nothing is not touched by that consideration. You know, if we're talking about how we make our society, there's nothing that's off limits to that discussion and to influencing the result of that discussion, which is to say that if people are interested in advocating a certain viewpoint, one of the things they'll use is the language itself. And they'll manipulate that language perhaps in ways that are not obvious. And they'll manipulate even the thing that is used, whether it be language or something else. So, you know, when mathematical arguments are made or when math is deployed as a means of making argument, um, there are, you know, strategies that are, you know, sort of analogous to linguistic strategies that are deployed. And then there are perhaps some extensions of linguistic strategies that are maybe only available in a mathematical context. All of this, you know, maybe to kind of make it a little bit more concrete, this reminds me of a paper I once read, a game theory paper, which purported to show how uh, humans think. Like, you know, if you read, if you read just the abstract of this paper, it, you know, it's like uh, four or five sentences, uh, a summary of, of the whole paper. And it says something like, we show that humans, uh, when they interact display the following attributes. <laughs> and if you read the meat- That's great. God, right. why haven't I read this paper already? Amazing, right? <laughs> Everyone should read it. Um, it's basically the new Bible. Yeah, uh, it's it the explains new, everything. It's the new uh, Tao Te Ching, et cetera. Everything if is you, so easy now. Right. <laughs> if you read the meat of the paper, though, I mean, what you'll see is they're making a- they're, In fact, they're making an argument about a certain kind of game, and they're making an argument about- um, a new they're they're making an argument about the nature of one of the equations that is typically used to describe um the boundaries of possible actions within one certain kind of game ah. and you know there are what's interesting about this is there are a couple of layers on which an argument is happening one layer is the natural language layer you know in the natural language layer they are sort of making reference to like black boxes of like non-natural language mm -hmm. that are like sitting around in there. Mm -hmm. And they're making a natural language argument of, of the sort that people are sort of probably intuitively familiar with. They're saying, you know, we think this is true because that, you know, and then scattered throughout this natural language argument are these little black boxes of non-natural language. And the non-natural language within itself is also making, there, there, are, there are arguments being made, so to speak, you know, and things analogous to arguments being made within those black boxes. And those are things like algebraic manipulations, mm. you know, or, um, or transformations, you know, uh, transformations of, of various kinds. And those are kind of analogous to arguments, but there's something slightly different, you know, because they exist in, mm -hmm. in math world and they don't quite work the same as natural language. Yeah. Or perhaps we only know them through natural language. So in some sense they work the same, but whatever, something like that. You know, it's funny because as abstract as this is sounding, it's making me think of board game play. Like <laughs> oh, I was playing through, um, is playing through a Gloomhaven scenario yes. pretty recently. And, you know, this is a game in which... Oh, I love it. 
<laughs> so this is a game that's very similar to like 1980s Hero Quest game. Maybe if some some of our listeners will be familiar with, it's a sort of attempt to simulate the experience of playing Dungeons and Dragons without needing a dungeon master. So you can all just be playing little heroes who are running around uh, stabbing frost demons or whatnot. Highly um, recommend in a board it. game context and you have exactly this kind of um, multi-part reasoning taking place. There's like, what do we want to do narratively now? Um, Not just in terms of what is this going to mean for our characters, but just we want to get closer to the end of the scenario. How do we want to do that? Do we want to rush in through this room and spend all of our resources or do we want to take it more slowly and sort of parcel ourselves out over a longer period of time? Um, And then within each individual decision once we've made those kind of larger natural language sort of thematic arguments there's the question of right now what's the most valuable thing for me to do like how much damage can i output what chances do i have of missing um have i crit failed on anything yet this encounter um so so you're doing a bunch of sort of expected value math in your head even if you just think about it as like dice rolling or whatever in the context of this larger narrative structure and then of course in like an actual D&D game you have even larger narrative considerations beyond that of like who is my character are they the kind of person who's going to run around and pick everybody's pocket while they're fighting the dragon or that kind of thing a couple of years ago I ran a campaign which uh, well like a <laughs> more of a marathon session we played for <laughs> both days of a weekend just uh, that Matt it was, was a the part best. of, um, but a- afterwards, I'll, I wrote a, um, I wrote an article that I'll link to in the show notes, kind of based on it. And um, one of the interesting things about the version of D and D I was playing, and and it ties into this, is that the only way to get XP is by getting like silver and gold. Like that's the only huh. way to actually get XP. <laughs> and it was really interesting to watch the way in which this like overarching system even though it wasn't the thing that was like consciously at the top of everyone's minds but like you know it changes your behavior and it changes your decision making like matrix maybe mm-hmm. um and and you know watching that kind of you know i think what in some circles would be like sort of like bad ludo narrative dissonance but like the way <laughs> i saw it was just like no it's beautiful it's like watching what actually happens in the real world as you're like systems tweak and play with you in ways that you're not even like aware of right you it was a, a system game yeah it was a wonderful game sorry i just putting that out there and <laughs> and you. and you know so like there's multiple there's multiple levels in all of these in all of these examples it's this is a, i love these metaphors this is exactly what i was going for it's like you have multiple levels constantly and they're all something that we're arguing over every level is being argued over in some sense at the same time you know and in this book in Noman, we're we're talking about multiple levels simultaneously um, and we're talking about arguments occurring in multiple levels simultaneously. There's God, a, there's, I can't wait for you guys to be finished. I know, this right? Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> there's like, there's, there's, there's arguments about mechanics. There's arguments using mechanics. There's arguments about the results of the use of mechanics. And then there's arguments about whether it, it matters at all. And, and it's, it's, it's really, it's rare to, to, to interact with a book that is so self-consciously making so many different levels of argument at the same right. time. Yeah, someone called it fractal earlier, and I mean, I'm again, I'm like five, ten percent the way through, but I'm already like, that's the word that keeps popping into my head through this. 
and it's uh it's so great and i mean on again on that cover speaking to the great design here we've got the shark's fin and then we've got the fours which inside the narrative are sometimes um relevant to sharks and to the, like that four looks like a shark's fin kind of if you if you if you see it so you've got that element of interacting realities and, and fractality of, and the fours themselves are like make a triangle like right yes 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 exactly so the, and then the fours have triangles and the fours are a triangle um so so yeah it, it's it's really multi-layered like that and i think one of the great successes of this book is um without while very rarely being a book in which characters are sitting down to lecture the reader about complicated and abstruse concepts um we very rarely get the like <laughs> the stevenson well, effect yeah the stevenson effect or even god i you know as a as a Mike, as a Michael Crichton fan in my childhood, <laughs> I am enamored of the sort of exceptionally long narrative aside in which a character relates like the content of three research papers to another character with some sort of convenient metaphor. Um, I'm somebody that loves that stuff. Oh, me too. I mean, me too. <laughs> it's great. It's 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 for potato chips. I, I could just eat these things up forever. <laughs> um, but one thing that I love about Noman is that while it does some of that, so many of these complex complicated ideas and sort of layers that you're discussing that we're all discussing here are present in sharp character communication. Like they're, they're present in character conflict. They're rooted in social realities that are then navigated through when class is encountered in this book, it's encountered as something that characters are dealing with when privacy or surveillance or sex show up. They're not showing up as abstractions. They're showing up as lived realities that then our characters are smart enough to start feeling um, the sort of abstract consequences of. And this allows the book to be doing a bunch of stuff on a bunch of different levels while it's never, um, it never feels a cult, even when it's lit, even when there's literally a cult shit going on, <laughs> on the page, <laughs> it never feels like it's, messing with you or like it's divorced from reality. And as somebody who spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to make complicated abstractions present in books without just writing an, an essay and then forcing everybody to read it, <laughs> um, it's, it's a marvelous experiment of spinning plates here. It's so much fun to watch him do it. it I felt like I was reading a high wire act for a lot of different reasons. Um, Max, I don't know if you've read this interview with with Nick Harkaway in The Guardian. Um, if not, I'll send it to you and I'll put it in the show notes. It's where that yeah, quote do. came from. And um, but he talks about how he actually wrote the novel over like five years and like wrote multiple other novels during the same time period. <laughs> and like, I think some of this comes from this process he used, which is like he went into it not actually knowing where the end was and not actually knowing what he was doing with it. And um, I, I don't know. I don't have something super smart to say other than I think this is a really cool essay and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to, to folks so that you can read oh, it. I read at least one conversation where he was talking about, about this composition process. And I think that really adds to the book. I mean, I, I don't really have a strong dog in the fight over Panzer versus Plotter, whether you sort of diagram your, all of your sentences out and then write them or whether you just kind of write the thing. But, um, but I think this works the way that amazing 
pants-based writing, amazing intuitive writing works where, uh, you know, I've written both and I've written both, you know, as well as I could at the time anyway. And while you can do certain sorts of awesome things with a complicated plan, and at some point sometimes plans become relevant, there's a thing that you can do when you're writing by the seat of your pants if you have, if you give it the time and you give it the back, enough back of your head to play with, enough of your reality to mess with, where suddenly everything falls into place. Like, there's just a sort of opening of the flower of the book that happens and it doesn't as complicated and weird and as moving piece laden as this is as impossible as it is in some ways to imagine him not having an outline and like a detailed scheme for it nevertheless the fact that it pulls that off is the real clue that he's telling the truth (laughs) there that like you couldn't get something that felt that organic and chilling and just straight through the spine any other way our subconscious brains are can do complicated shit yeah that's it that's it the most complicated shit our conscious mind is like a little it's like three guys on a raft in a storm <laughs> arguing about which way the waves are going to take them next yeah. i think, I think uh, my favorite <laughs> metaphor for the conscious mind is like a gigantic skyscraper so you are in front of you're like person-sized thing and you're in front of a gigantic skyscraper-sized spinning top that doesn't spin on one um, axis but spins on like innumerable (laughs) axes simultaneously in like lots of different dimensions way more than four (laughs) and it's in front of you and it's sort of swaying in like an impossible to understand way and it's sort of like affecting itself sway right like it's one thing will sort of suddenly flip to the other side and then the swaying will slightly shift and so on (laughs) that's actually how i think of a human mind yeah that seems right that seems about right consonant Uh, with my experience and yet we are all just on some level in line trying to figure out whether we have exact change yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I use a card, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, Apple Pay, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> well, I use Apple Pay. Oh. Um. Well, well, with that, is there anything more that we we really want to hit here? I feel like we've um we've I've covered everything. I've been privileged to witness Max. Yeah, <laughs> Max, talking to you witness has been great. To I mean, especially just like your... this stuff about the like author process is really cool because I I wouldn't I you know wouldn't have known any of that being a uh, hashtag content creator, not a, <laughs> not an author proper. Oh man. Oh, I mean, it's all, it all feeds into itself, you know, I mean, how, how well has this conversation stayed on plan? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not at all. The, no, no, it's much no. The, the plan, better for it. The plan was to create content. Yeah. It's stayed on that plan extremely well. I'm trying not to laugh into the mic. It's hard. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything else that folks want to uh, to hit? I'm also like I'm dying of heat in here. My my I can't run my AC while doing this. So it's getting real hot yeah. in the room. <laughs> so any last words, Max, on why someone should read this book? I think it's. It'll be, it would be easy listening to all of this to get the feeling like, oh, this is, you know, this is a very smarty pants book and I, d- I don't have the mental space for it or whatever. But I want to say, like, I picked this up 
in a period of extreme brain burn, deadline fatigue, and intense mental fugue when I had tried and failed to actually get engaged by any number of other books and where I felt like my attention was as fragmented as it's ever been in my life. And it just grabbed me and pulled me. It was like I was trying to be behind a speedboat, you know, trying to trying to do some jet skiing. And it, it was like, it was such a fun reading experience. And I think it's easy for me especially to lose that and being very kind of grognardy and, and cone-headed about <laughs> all of the things that I like in my life. But it, it's such a fun read. Yeah. I, I am experiencing that. I'm experiencing too. I'm so excited to finish this book. And then we are going to have another conversation mm. uh, with Max after we finish the book. Yeah. All um, in person, hope, hopefully. Yeah. Well, great. I hope you guys like it. I'm worried after building it up so much. <laughs> I love it so far. I yeah, mean, you know, I'm, I'm really better. liking it so far. Right. Like, so I've read, I've read another of his books too. So I feel pretty confident that it's you know i i love gone away world it was just like one of my favorite books and i read it at a time when i was working at a um a tech startup and so it's kind of musings on the way like corporations work were like very mm. relevant to my interests at the time <laughs> excellent <laughs> yeah um, and so i I'm, I'm really looking forward to having uh, uh one of our classic i liked it 98 percent. i liked it 97 percent. i liked it 97.5 percent type of conversations <laughs> Um, <laughs> should be great to really plumb the depths of that that 0.5 percent uh, <laughs> as noted cultural luminary piece of content Frazier at one point said the only thing better than this is my wife quotes this all the time the only thing better than a, a phenomenal perfect meal is a perfect meal with one tiny flaw in it that you can spend the rest of the night arguing about <laughs> Oh, that's great. I love oh, that. Oh, man. <laughs> I, uh, I like wish I didn't like Frasier as much as I do. <laughs> don't don't tell my girlfriend I said that because I have to pretend uh, I don't like it to her. All right. All right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. All right, your secret is safe. It's just you, me, Matt, and the internet. <laughs> yep, and everyone. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if she ever listens to this uh, yeah she 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 read the book actually before i did so she she may well Ooh, cool. um good stuff cool all right thank you so much max um again the craft Likewise. sequence books i know are available on like you know kindle and everything there's the cereal box which you should explain fourth season of book burners mm-hmm. um it's out right now and, and coming in May 2019 is my um, wild space, uh, well, near future sort of tech billionaire teleported into the very, very far future space operatic um, wild adventure novel called Empress of Forever, which I strongly recommend everybody check out. But that's coming in, in May of 2019, so you've got some time to catch up on the backlist first. Such a strong recommendation for that. But that is... Maybe we'll have Nick Harkaway on to talk about that book. <laughs> oh, yeah, excellent. Oh, It'd be great. I love, great. That. I love that so much. <laughs> someone, someone reach out to him. Inception. Yeah. Uh, um, great. Well, um, I'll, I'll do the outro really quickly here. Um, you know, we our music is done by WJ. You can find him on SoundCloud. 
Our artwork is done by Noah Bradley. He's at noahbradley.com. You can buy his prints and stuff there. Uh, we are at SpectologyPod on Twitter and SpectologyPod at gmail.com. That's it for social media for us. I don't have time for anything else. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe, you know, like, subscribe, blah, blah, blah. Um, also, please do like email us or tweet at us. Like, I love getting stuff from our readers. And I will, you know, if you want me to, I will like ask questions and stuff that people send in. We will um, definitely put that on the air and like, you know, use that. I, I really like that. And I've done that before. And um, yeah, with that, you know, again, big thanks to Max. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Max. Yeah, I was just going to say, and if there's any, you know, corrections, uh, I always like to hear that too. If you think that we've said something incorrect or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it's really a pleasure to learn from smart readers. I love people telling me I'm a big fat idiot head. You are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Again, thanks to Max. Um, You know, thanks. Thanks to Matt. I'm looking forward to to doing this again. I get to go up to Boston. We get to do it in person. It's going to be like a ton of fun. So thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This is great. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.